Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Gagaris Mammal Podcast. This is Chris. I've got a little special episode here for you. These are two interviews I did at Collision in New Orleans earlier in the year. And I'm going to focus on uh, software foundations. And I have an interview with Brian Bailendorf of the Hyperledger Foundation and an interview with Chris Borchers of the JavaScript Foundation. Now, unfortunately, the press area, or in fact, the whole venue at Collision was not great for recording. There's a lot of background noise. I have done my best to remove as much of it as possible, but there were, there are definitely certain places where it's going to be hard to hear what people have to say, but I thought it was worth leaving in. And there are certain places where I have just cut it and jumped in and filled in the gaps. So... I hope you stick through the whole episode and listen to the interviews because they were quite interesting, but I do apologize again. And hopefully the collision venue next year in Toronto instead of New Orleans is a little better set up for audio recordings. So first up, this is Chris Borchers. Chris Borchers. Uh, I work for the Linux Foundation and currently my time there, I'm 100% uh, working on the JS Foundation. So I'm executive director for the JS Foundation. Um, which 
our our sort of mission, our uh, goal is to support key JavaScript projects, um, uh, open source JavaScript projects, obviously, um, throughout the ecosystem. And so it's everything from some of the old tried and true, like jQuery is one of our projects, um, to a lot of the sort of newer tooling and workflow things like uh, Webpack or um, uh, things like that. So, yeah. And, and how long has the JS Foundation been running? Uh, so, that's an interesting question. So, we, uh, we're actually a... Uh, the JS Foundation was a relaunch of the jQuery Foundation. Um, so, if you go back to that... I. I always blank on this day. I want to say we formed the jQuery Foundation in 2012. Um, and then in October 2016, um, we had already grown. I mean, we had a number of projects uh, kind of start up the jQuery Foundation um, beyond jQuery. Um, in early 2016 uh, or late 2015, we actually absorbed the Dojo Foundation. Um, and so we brought in wow. Dojo and, um, <laughs> but a lot of tools, so a, a lot of tools that um, uh, are being used. So like Lodash was part of that, um, Grunt, uh, things like that. So those all came in then. Um, and then in October 2016, we relaunched as the JS Foundation brought in a few more projects. That's when Webpack came in. Um, IBM brought in Node-RED. Samsung brought in JerryScript, which is uh, a a really interesting... It's a um, uh, JavaScript engine for memory-constrained devices. So JavaScript engine for, like, uh, running on microcontrollers. and. um, I don't think they use it in Tizen that I'm aware of. Um, They are doing some work with some of their Arctic uh, devices, um, but uh, where we've seen so uh, JerryScript actually ships on the uh, new uh, Fitbit Ionic and Versa um, and so that's what enables if you want to build um, apps or clock faces for those devices you just write them in uh, SVG, CSS and JavaScript um, and JerryScript is the engine that enables that yeah, just a little bit, because I saw your talk yesterday, or your panel yesterday. Yep. Um, and actually, so you also, you previously used to be involved a lot more with jQuery, and I think. And, and jQuery is, it's, it's, to me, it's like PHP. It's got one of those, these days it has one of these bad reputations, purely because it's been around for a while. Right. But actually, I still think it's wonderful because it's one of those technologies that brings a lot of people in. And okay, it may not be the best. But it's easy for people to get started, and then they go and discover other things. It's like I actually was teaching beginning coding with with Ruby on Rails to people, and we discovered that Ruby on Rails is terrible to teach to beginners because they don't understand the pain yet of what it solves. <laughs> so, and sometimes things like jQuery and PHP are good to start, and then you realize, oh, bringing in this huge library for a couple of small things. Maybe it's not worth it. Right. I'll go and look at some other stuff, but you don't actually know what the problem is until sometimes you've you've, you've experimented with that. But so, what was your involvement with the, with the jQuery project at jQuery Foundation? Whatever sure. your involvement was. In? Sure. Yeah. So, um, no, I mean, it, I guess first to your point, I mean, jQuery, it is not the the cool kid on the block anymore. <laughs> um, but it's still. I mean, if you look at like builtwith.com, I mean, it's still on something like. Uh, 20-ish percent of the internet, um, like the 80% of the top million websites 
still use jQuery. Um, Probably with WordPress. Well, yes, exactly. And so WordPress does, uh, I think, uh, push a lot of that continued usage. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, even if you if you look at our um, our CDN uh, that Stackpath provides for us, they uh, it still averages something like sixteen, seventeen thousand hits per second. Um, and that's just our CDN. And then there's a Google CDN, and there's all the others. And then there's the people that are just yeah. running it on their own yeah. servers. So, um, so it's still being used. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, my history. So I was. So this is unfortunately one of the points where the background noise is way too loud to hear some interesting points. So I'll quickly jump in here. Chris talks about how he was a webmaster, if you remember that word, at a university and first discovered jQuery, got involved with contributing to jQuery UI um, and did a lot of uh, bug fixes thanks to the bug bounty program they had at the time. And as a prize for fixing one of those, he went to one of the jQuery conferences and from then on got sucked into the community. And now I will let uh, Chris Went and got a job at Red Hat um, running a, the JavaScript team on a mobile project uh, called Aerogear, which is still around but very different than what it was when I, I was there. Yeah, so when I was there, the idea that we were exploring, because um, at this point it was still, um, there was no product around it. It was just, let's build something and see what happens. Um, and so the idea was, uh, it was to be a uh, framework for developers. Uh, it had its own sort of JavaScript framework, Android framework, iOS framework, but we worked really hard to keep the um, the APIs as similar as possible um, in an attempt to uh, have development teams be able to sort of speak the same language to each other but then build in the native language for the particular yeah, solution. Yeah, and there was a whole plethora of these sorts of technologies. This is kind of where I got more into doing a lot more community work was actually with the um, of, uh, as was then, I mm-hmm. uh, and I ran a mobile meetup and we covered jQuery mobile. Uh, oh God, uh, Censure. Oh yeah. Uh, titanium Accelerator. All these sorts of technologies. Yeah. They're all getting somewhat superseded. In a good, a good and bad. <laughs> no, absolutely. And and our yeah. So those were a little bit different. So what we were. We were not going for that sort of um, single code base and deploy. It was more your team would still, the JavaScript people would write JavaScript, the Android people would write Android, uh, right, but, they, but they could, the, 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 uh, the libraries themselves had very similar APIs within the confines of the language differences. Um, it ended up, I mean, it didn't, end up becoming anything um they sort of pivoted that and started focusing more on like um like unified push messaging stuff and that's and then they acquired uh feed henry um and that kind of kept in that sort of like uh more like server side focused uh push messaging type thing that was after i left so um while i was on that team um ended up finding my way onto the board of directors at the jQuery Foundation. Um, For better or worse, I mean, it worked out good for me. Um, In hindsight, we learned that um, promoting developers 
to your board was probably not the best way to sort of strategically run an organization um, because no one really had experience in actually like yeah. running a business. Um, <laughs> I mean, can we just coast everything? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but it worked out for me um, because so I was on the board, um, and then when the current executive director uh, decided to go on to another opportunity, I threw my hat in the ring and got the job. So, so I mean, back in the days of the jQuery Foundation, I guess there were probably less mature JavaScript projects to consider. But, you know, the cliche with JavaScript these days is there's so many frameworks. I've covered a lot of the Linux Foundation and non-Linux Foundation foundations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like the Cloud Native Foundation, Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hyper Foundation, of course, um, and several others. And with those, often it's a much more niche area, and it's probably easier to pick some of the projects. But with the JS Foundation, like how there are so many JavaScript frameworks and projects, how do you even decide what should be included? Sure. So um, th- there's there's a bit of a we have a process. Um, so any any project can apply to join. Um, we have um, a repo under the JS Foundation org on GitHub, um, and uh, it explains the application process. But it's basically just filling out a whole bunch of information about the project and really explaining to us um, what your goal is with the project um, in terms of, of growth and community building. Because um, that's, that's where where we can help. Um, we do not employ developers to write code on your project or anything like that. Um, our goal and the, the point of our mentorship pro, pro, uh, program that we have um, is to help projects uh, put policies and procedures in place that we have seen over time uh, are conducive to building a healthy community and um, uh, not relying on sort of that single individual or single organization to keep a project going um, and sort of more like, diversify that committer and contributor base um, so that uh, if the company that maybe started the project decides, oh, we're going to move on, um, there's still an entire community that will keep it running for the large group of people that still use it. And in a similar vein for JavaScript frameworks especially, when do you, or when does someone decide that a project is time to come out? You know, JavaScript things come and go quite quickly. Well, it appears they do. Obviously, again, jQuery is a good example. of Everyone ignores it, but it's still going very strong. Right, <laughs> so. right. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, so I get, so your question is, like, when when are projects done? Yeah. Um, that's that's a hard question. Um, we have, we do have projects that are um, sort of on that cusp of, um, they've been done in terms of, like, feature development and things like that. Um and use is is waning, and so we've started the conversations of how do we sort of um, not necessarily like we would obviously never just like delete a project, um, but how, how do we sort of denote that this project is just done and no longer being supported? And um, we have other projects that are for. Uh, 
all intents and purposes done. Uh, so, uh, example is Require.js. Um, so, it's done. Um, James Burke is the, the guy that does most of the development on that still. But it, he's not, as far as I know, really adding features or building anything new. He fixes bugs, especially things that are critical, because there is still a really wide, really large user base for that project. Um, but it's done. Um, and so that is a, a conversation going on in our technical advisory committee right now is how do we how do we sort of uh, label for better or worse these projects to inform the ecosystem sort of where they're at without sort of like writing it off right because um, we don't want we definitely don't want to say like stop using Require.js because there are still very valid use cases for a project like that. Um, but we also want people to know that like, if you want new features, it's likely not going to be implemented unless you do it yourself. Um, and I get the impression, especially in the JavaScript world, that there might be some quote marks competing foundations like is Node and then, <laughs> yeah. I mean you have something like Node which I think has its own foundation it does but it's a huge project and you have something like React which is huge but I doubt Facebook is part of the foundation no. has their own kind of whatever sure yep <laughs> and lots of other yeah I don't know things like Angular mm-hmm. I don't which, which which of the kind of big big frameworks are part of your foundation versus their own kind of institution. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, if you think about sort of the big frameworks um, that people are using, um, none of them. Um, we do have... Um, Apart from jQuery. Oh, sure. Well, so, and yeah, I mean, jQuery, I, I wouldn't call a framework. Um, I, I would I would more call it a, a library. Um, um but uh, so we do actually make sure I'm not. What time is it? Should be to, today's Wednesday, right? Uh, so so Dojo Two is being announced today, um, and it's a complete rewrite, uh, all in TypeScript, uh, all um, uh, with a view toward um, web components. So um, it's actually really interesting, and I'm I'm interested to see. Uh, if if it can start gaining some ground because it's it is I mean it it will not remind you of Dojo very much um, it is a uh, I would call a new framework um, uh, and very forward looking in terms of the um, the standards that they're following um, I mean you can take uh, if you have sort of a web component that's been built toward the still developing web component spec, Dojo 2 will import that and you can use it. Um, and then similarly, you can export out web components. Um, uh, and like I said, it's all written in TypeScript, so it's uh, JavaScript, but you get a lot of that, that type safety and um, and things like that. So um, I think that'll be an interesting one to keep an eye on. We also recently brought in um, Marco, which is a uh, UI library, but it has sort of an ecosystem that will you can use it as a framework. Um, originally developed at eBay, um, and so it's what runs the UI of eBay.com um, and still does. And um, it's another really interesting one. Uh, it kind of takes uh, 
so if you if you look at like React and how they use, so they have uh, JSX, um, which kind of takes JavaScript and makes it more HTML-y. I know, I know. I, um, I still don't like it. <laughs> so Marco went the other way, and okay. so they took HTML and made it more JavaScript-y for theirs. Um, and actually, I feel like I could wrap my head around that more easily, and maybe it's just me. Um, but I guess, so do projects end up, I mean, maybe it's not been going long enough yet, but do projects kind of almost graduate? You know, mm-hmm. someone like Node, for example, maybe they could have been a member a few years ago and they become so large that they're actually better off setting up their own foundation. I guess that could happen. Yeah, that could happen. Um, so the JS Foundation and the Node.js Foundation are both Linux Foundation projects. Uh, so we're running uh, JS Interactive is a, a big JavaScript event coming up in October in Vancouver. Um, and that is... Uh, replacing Node.js Interactive. Um, And so Node.js and Foundation and JS Foundation were collaborating. At the end of the day, we have the same communities, the same ecosystem. Uh, I mean, we support... They support Node, and we support basically everything else um, that is interested in our help. Um, And a lot of that stuff either... It only runs on Node or uses Node in its tooling or whatever. So there's so much overlap there; it just makes sense for us to be working together more and more. So, and um, I mean, one of the points of foundations is often to help projects uh, mature, get some kind of governance framework, mm-hmm. grow the community, manage in quote marks the community, etc. As you alluded to earlier as well, it's not always first nature to, especially more technically minded people, um, but they have their own sort of way of self-organizing sometimes. Sure. So what would be, I guess, your main pieces of advice to uh, people whose projects are kind of growing and they want to take them to the next step and figuring out how to do that? Sure. So, I mean, that's that's exactly where we want to help yeah. and that those are the projects we want applying yeah so i mean come talk to me or at least go check out the uh js foundation org on github and find that application um and apply because even i mean you can apply and and maybe it's we just give some advice and you decide ah it's not for us right now and that's fine um but i think as part of that process i mean the the main pieces of advice that we like to give and Actually, I think I started touching on this in the, the panel yesterday. Um, I mean, one of the, the things that it's, I hate that I even have to say it, but like licenses matter. Um. I know, it was actually yesterday, <laughs> to be honest with you, I've been one of those guilty people who's never really cared much about licenses. And the panel yesterday actually made me think, I think I, I think I need to pay a bit more attention. Actually, I, I've always kind of been the person in the room at open source events when people start talking licenses and leaves. So, no, I mean but, uh, it's a boring yeah. topic, um, and I just always felt like it wasn't so constructive, personally. And also, strangely, I have tend to find Americans care about it far more than anybody else, <laughs> which is an interesting thing. <laughs> yeah, and and I don't know if that just stems from. So, I mean, honestly, for. Uh, for me, in helping projects grow, um, one of the main ways that I try to help projects grow is get businesses that are using them to actually contribute to them and work on them. And those companies are not going to 
contribute their IP or light or license their IP through a CLA to a project that's using the like WTFPL or like yeah, yeah, some yeah. ridiculous license or no license at all yeah. um, because there's no there's no safety there there's no um, and, and so yeah and so we I mean as a, a policy at the JS Foundation we default to um, Apache 2 um, because it is kind of the uh, gold standard of license if you will it's, it, it gives you that sort of liberal flexibility of like a MIT license or BSD license um, but it has the um, uh, patent clause, patent uh, licensing uh, protection uh, that especially large patent holding organizations want to see um, uh, to make sure that there's no possibility of them violating their own patents or someone violating just getting into this whole legal mess around patents. Um, so it's something I've, I've actually start to pay more attention to and I have been I've worked at small startups who don't care and then it can sting you later because you've got a dependency that is no longer maintained I've also last year worked at an enterprise company where we had to very tediously go through every license and there were some of these W2F licenses where the legal people were like and it was like a dependency of a dependency of a dependency, but it was enough that the legal team would say, no, sorry. <laughs> no, absolutely. And that's, yeah, and that's where, I mean, so we, the folks at FASA, I don't know if you're familiar with, with them. It's a, a newer startup. They've been around for a while now, um, but they do uh, license scanning. I've interviewed uh, another company that does something similar whose name completely escapes me right now. But yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah so uh, Fossa's been great. So they give us their services for free. Um, and we've found really interesting things. Like um, ended up everything ended up being okay after some legal review and some changing out of dependencies. But, I mean, we found things like um, incorrect metadata. So even like the the like say package json would say uh mit but then you actually go and look at the license file and it's like a gpl3 and you're like uh, uh. <laughs> but like fossa finds that so we it's um but that's one of the main one of the big i, I guess uh services we provide our projects that a lot of developers don't want to care about, which is that sort of legal angle that they don't even think about um, in terms of having proper licensing, making sure all of your dependencies are safe, um, providing a CLA so that contributions coming in are properly licensed to the project to be used. So, um, But yeah, so back to your original question on sort of advice. I mean, I would say licenses matter. Um, the other big thing um, that we really try to instill in projects is, um, like the short version is write it down. Um, but the, the, the idea is uh, in the way that your project runs, um, no matter how that is right now, whether it's a benevolent dictator or you have a technical steering committee or whatever write down how decisions are made how people can get involved how people can work their way from filing a bug to being one of those decision makers um, and give contributors 
as much information in that area as possible um, because developers like targets. And so if you say uh, when someone contributes, like, thanks for your contribution, uh, we'd love to keep you involved, and here's how you can stay involved, here's when we have meetings, like really sort of holding their hand in that process, you get a lot more people to stick around and stay involved in the project. The idea of uh, funding for developers for open source projects is is a very valid thing. Um, I think where my opinions differ um, is in the methodology. Um, and so we've learned uh, from experiences uh, that directly paying uh, open source developers for their contributions um, to like to the tune of of actually like that becomes their livelihood um, and outside of a a business with other interests so uh, this is probably getting a little convoluted but I one of the best ways our projects have contributors that are consistent and stick around are they work for an employer that funds at least a portion of their time to work on a project. And that, to me, is one of the most ideal ways to have consistent, long-term contribution. Uh, because a business, if their product depends on that project, they are going to make sure there are people working on it. Um, where where I get concerned uh, with some of these these uh, crowdfunding platforms that have come up um, and even even the the patreon model if you can make it work um, I think is okay because that is an individual that's saying pay me as an individual to work on something and I think that works it's when you start funding a project that it in itself is not a legal entity and in turn that project is then paying people it, it just gets very murky in terms of sort of legalities and tax laws and you're kind of trusting some people that are new to this game to actually know what they're doing and um, it, it it raises concerns to me. And even beyond all of that, we've seen in the past, I mean, we, for a while, did pay people to uh, full-time to run jQuery UI, jQuery Mobile, um, and some other uh, projects at the jQuery Foundation. Um, and though those people did a great job, um, what we found was um, whether... Uh, and I don't think this was any sort of um, malicious intent on their part or whatever. It just was a natural occurrence that the focus became doing their work and, and making sure that they were getting things done and, and billing for their time and much less focus on building a community and an ecosystem. And so when the money eventually and inevitably runs out, there's no one there to pick up the slack when those people are well. I'm not getting paid, so I'm not. I'm not going to work on this anymore. Um, it's an interesting perspective, actually. Yeah. yeah, the the 
multiple people doing a little bit is more sustainable than one person doing everything. I mean, these being some very high-profile examples of yeah. failing, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, it's it's yet to be seen if this works out. I mean, Webpack has been successful at raising a good amount of money um, and distributing it. I think it's just I have concerns about when it's no longer a great marketing thing for uh, some company to give them money every month and that number starts dropping and they lose someone like Tobias um, who, I mean, he's making his living off of this and I think he might have some other contracts but he gets paid quite well and he's the lead, he's the original creator and if he stops getting paid I don't see him sticking around because, I mean, and I don't blame these people because they have to go find work and so it's we could we could talk for a long time on that topic but um because yeah i mean i have opinions um and i should say these are for the most part i think personal opinions i mean they come from experiences at jquery foundation js foundation but um we're still figuring out sort of a foundation uh sort of stance on this And, and that's why i mean we do not stop our projects. So Webpack has an open collective. Mocha yeah. has an open collective. Um, yeah. Um, so like we don't stop them from doing this because it's not, I mean, uh, we want them, they have autonomy within the JS Foundation. Um, it's just, we have concerns and so we're trying to figure out. It's good to see your name on the list because yeah, I saw, I went to Hyperledger Meetup in Berlin last week. Uh-huh. And some things popped into my head at the outcome of the, after that. So it was like, okay, it's cool. I get to ask for it. <laughs> Straight to the source and ask the horse. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the project has been very busy. They get a lot of emails from the newsletter, and there's always lots of talk, and there's lots of local meetups and things. But I can't remember exactly when we last spoke, but um, let's say it was six months ago, just for academic purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, What's new in the project in the past six months? Sure. Well, uh, so uh, in the last six months, we shipped a production uh, version of Sawtooth. Okay. It's now the second uh, toolkit that is in production. Um, well, production grade, which means the developers are happy and comfortable with the idea of other companies and people they've never met uh, running this to manage real digital assets, right? So that's a that's a that's a wall, uh, uh, a um, you know, a, uh, a milestone for any project in this space. So, uh, and now there are companies, you know, uh, building networks on top of uh, Sawtooth uh, and, and um, uh, uh, in healthcare, in finance, and all sorts of places. So, uh, and across that and Fabric, which is our other enterprise yeah. platform, there's probably in the order of not a large number, but a couple of dozen uh, different production networks, and each of those networks being. You know, uh, a group of banks, a group yeah. of whatever. Um, so that's that's interesting, and I think we'll get to a uh, uh, high double digit, maybe even low triple digit this year. Um, uh, there's quite a few of those who don't talk talk about what they do. Quite, quite a few sure. deployments of this that are are behind the scenes, right? Um, but that's that's interesting. And so, uh, uh, secondly, uh, um, there's been a lot of pickup around Indie Hyperledger Indie, which is the um, self sovereign identity platform uh, that uh, is. Being built as a part of the sovereign network and a part of uh, um, some of these other 
uh, approaches to self-sovereign identity, yeah, yeah, yeah. to user-centric identity. Uh, yeah, so um, Indie's out, and, and it's still not at 1.0 yet, but yeah. uh, uh, lots of folks are picking it up and using it, and Sovereign Network is running it in production, so it's starting to get some use and traction. Um, we, uh, in October, so quite a little bit outside your six-month window, but we put up a course uh, on yeah. edX for okay. Hyperledger that has now attracted 90,000 people. I have signed up for that and started to take that course. Uh, uh, And so really that's just an attempt for us to kind of help the world understand this different approach to blockchain technology that isn't about cryptocurrencies and ICOs, but is about some more prosaic application of distributed. And actually so far, I mean, this is the interesting thing, and I'll get to the the, the outcome of, maybe less positive outcome of this soon, but... um, with a lot of so, for example, there was a little briefing from the uh, Joe from Consensus, who I think you were on the panel with earlier, and we talk about Ethereum. All the questions were about regulation. Is it that? Is it this? You could tell it wasn't what he wanted to talk about, <laughs> but it's all that ever gets asked. And I get the impression that Hyperledger manages to circumvent that conversation too much. Maybe the, the the cryptocurrency community are trying to do a bunch of very ambitious things all at once, right? Whether it's the world computer, whether it's yeah. a global payments platform. So I give them due credit for that. We have an easier job, yeah. which is there are existing business networks that before blockchain technology, the only way to really serve those networks was to anoint somebody as the hub and as the owner of the data. And there's some checks and balances you could put in, but uh, whether it was in the consumer side, things like um, uh, Uber or or PayPal, right? Uh, Or in the business side, um, you know, know, Ariba or these other kind of like business aggregators, the technical architecture of client server ended up lending itself really well to building big, giant, scalable servers. Right, um, and so blockchain technology is kind of finally uh, uh, something to return the technical architecture to where the business architecture is, which is a lot of competitive companies kind of you know jostling each other with sharp elbows, but all having a common need for uh, a common ground truth between what they do. And so we don't go in and say you've got to change regulation to use it. We say this is a tool for actually enforcing greater tracking and traceability, and and it's. I don't like to call it reg tech, which I guess is kind of a popular thing out there. But um, if you want to build your KYC network on top of something yeah. like this, if you want to, you know, implement your um, diamond uh, supply chain traceability mechanism using this, this is a way to, to get there. Um, what I hope it means is less anxiety out there about, well, how does this meet, meet up with regulations? And maybe a way to make meeting the spirit of regulation uh, easier yeah. for new participants. Because it, if it's an excuse for bureaucracy and an excuse for keeping new competitors out, that's where regulations are bad, right? That's where we all can agree it'd be better to have less of them. But if we can meet reporting requirements, if we can meet transparency requirements easily, you know, in an automated fashion and keep fraud from happening in the first place, uh, then we're probably a lot better off. And that's what that's what blockchain technology can be about. It's actually interesting because the so the, the meetup I went to instead of half answering half answering my next question, the meetup went to last week, I think. Um, the the example was it was it was actually weird considering it was the hyperledger meetup. The audience were really tough. Sure. <laughs> on the well, speaker. Berlin is really full of, of, of cryptocurrency crowds. So I know. They, they, they this is a funny thing. Usually they're more pro. This crowd was maybe this was the issue because it's this whole issue with that throws a lot of uh, traditional crypto people with hyperledger being the, the private aspect. And the example that the person gave maybe wasn't. I spoke to the organizer of the event the next day at another event, and she said to me, it wasn't a very good example. All the questions were basically just around that it didn't quite get the point. Like, 
why why not just do this with a centralized server and have access to user accounts? Like, why do I need blockchain? I can do this already with love you know, 101 tools. And actually, you you said it in a much more dis, uh, much better way just then in passing. Like, it changes that dynamic of having to have one person as the data owner. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah. about decentralizing um, without necessarily anarchy, right? And <laughs> you know, somehow, somehow, anarchy became a first order, you know, prerogative in this space. And I, and I even yeah. think the appearance of anarchy is false because if you look at the differences in reaction in the Ethereum community to the DAO hack and to the Parity Wallet hack, and you realize there's subjective decision making going on and, and leadership and cultural differences that bailed one mistake out but not the other. Right? It wasn't based on objective criteria. Um, and 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 so why not recognize that governance happens and start saying how do we have governance in these networks? Um, and once you do that, then it's a very short stretch to say, well, that governing entity looks an awful lot like a permitting entity on a on a permission ledger, right? Yeah. And that this is the way that most business ecosystems work is they're they're you know especially mature ones, especially in regulated industries. There's a set of agreements. If you're a company that wants to uh, uh, into the medical field. There's a set of agreements you have to agree to, right? And so I've started to use the phrase minimum viable centralization to characterize, well, maybe let's let's make sure that that entity that plays the, the, the role of the referee on the football field, right? Yeah. Um, their role should be as lightweight, as uh, transparent, and as objective as possible, right? Um, I, it should perhaps look a little bit like ICANN, right? Yeah. Where ICANN warts and all does a very admirable job of being the centralization. People talk about the internet is decentralized. No, it's not. There's very lightweight centralization, very lightweight governance that kind of barely works, but it works. And ICANN, I think, has been a, a model for, for, for stewarding that. And if they had failed their job, the domain name registrars would have all gotten together and done an ICANN 2.0. Right? Um, uh, and so as long as we can fire the governing entity, as long as those nodes are there because they want to do business with the other nodes but ultimately realize they have the power and they can fork at any time, uh, then then this is as good as, That's as, actually a, good as point. a... Yeah, it's actually a good point. You could always... The, the entities could always fork if they don't like... It's actually almost a better way of representing a lot of kind of corporate squabbling. Yeah. You know, we don't like the way you're looking at things. We can do it ourselves. Corporate squabbling and developer squabbling will, you know, survive to the heat death of the universe. I mean, so we still have to figure out, though, how to do business with each other. And in the open source software community, we figured this out. I know. And it's actually something I say to blockchain people all the time. A number of times I stand and I'm just like, oh, we need all these mechanisms for managing decentralized. It's like, you don't need that. Just look at fucking Git at open source. Like, let me do it if the agency. So, and and I I do realize that sometimes I I, I, uh, romanticize kind of open source out there, but partly it's because I've spent a lot of time in the Apache community yeah. and, and others where if you're voting to make a major decision you've already failed because yeah. mo- driving consensus is much less about what does yeah. 51% of the world think and much more about do we collectively as a small team who are, are responsible as stewards for this component or this kernel or this software release are we agreeing that this is the right kind of architecture or wrong one or you know, at least having this kind of lazy consensus of people making changes, but lots of others overseeing yeah. and kind of reviewing and, oh, there, there was a mistake in that, a typo in that, or 
And where, where it's a deeper question, having a longer-term conversation about the right way to go. But these are not 51% voting wins or losses, you know, get in. And um, there's an intrinsic value to everybody working together, which is I need a better Linux kernel, I need a better yeah. web server, because I have something else i got to do. I'm not trying to make money down here. That's not why yeah, I actually true. work. And that's, what, yeah. that's why, I mean, all of the permission ledgers, they don't need a token to incentivize uh, consensus because the parties are already incented yeah. to have a high-quality ledger. And then finally, I'll end it. Um, so open source worked because the license guaranteed the right to fork. said, you know, if we've got a project here and it's led by Linus Torvalds and it's got his name on it, and, and he's doing a decent job as air traffic control slash you know, chief architect slash what a, you know community builder. Although you, you know, uh, uh, not perfect on on all of those, right? But good enough that yeah. people stick around. If he ever failed enough that the community wasn't happy with it, the community can fork, yeah. right? They can go in a different direction and essentially follow a different leader. Yeah. And that is a check on territory. You can't fork your your Uber history. Right? No, and and I used to be involved in the Drupal project, and something happened similarly. Yeah. When Drupal 8 came out, a lot of people didn't like the direction there was a fork. And then it and the same with Node, and it re, they rejoined at some point when the community was forks are incredibly natural, yeah. uh, and and they do come back around. Yeah. Um, and you need this Darwinian competition mm-hmm. for resources, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so that's why I don't think we'll ever get down to one global currency. Uh, you know, for any the same reason we never got around to Esperanto, right? Uh, I, Sorry to make that comparison, but um, I live uh, in the eurozone, so you know we're partially there. But <laughs> you know, I think I think a global currency community made sense when um, exchanges between across borders were challenging yeah. and people didn't want to carry lots of different currencies. But I wonder if today, in 2018, if um, we still had the lira and the Deutschmark and others, but people had credit cards and they were vaguely aware of, of yeah. uh, you know currency rates, but. Where somebody from you know uh, London, you know uh, Paris would go to Stuttgart and you know, like buy something as easily as they would with cash. Yeah. Would it have even ma- does, would not the euro matter? No, right. it's, it's kind of where uh, checks and even the banknotes came from in the first place. Yeah, having a more trend, uh, more convenient method of exchanging worth instead. Uh, there was a, a conference a couple of uh, months ago in Berlin that was this whole discussion around probably more so. The non-hyperledger community around tokenizing all the things, and this conference was an example of it. Kind of got too far one way, and it was just even a lot of the crypto fans in Berlin was like, "What the hell are people?" Th- th- those happen in San Francisco too. Yeah, yeah. There's there's two there's two uh, um, sub subtexts that I think are hybridizing here. One subtext is anger at the system, yeah. anger at the way Which the world works, kind of um, dissatisfaction, whether it's economics or politics or or. Or, but a sense of disenfranchisement and they saw 20 years ago there was a window into which a bunch of smart geeks stepped and out came Google and Facebook and, and there's a sense of a window open there that you know if the, if the geeks can get in and, and have the right strategy then they can become the next uh, well so part of it is we could remake society it isn't that glorious the other part is um, a lot of people are not at a point of economic self-sufficiency right yeah. now not at a point where they have more than a couple of months of rent saved up in their savings of that right um, and, and so so, you know, to, to see the guy down the street who, um, uh, you know, made a lucky bet and bought, you know, thir- you know, mined 30 Bitcoin on his home computer, right? And now is driving around a Lambo or something like that. Like, yeah. there's a, that, that amplifies that anger and that sense of missing out. Um, and it hybridizes with um, a lot of money that has nowhere to go in yeah. the financial markets out there because 
returns from equities are down. Returns from all sorts of ordinary traditional things are plummeted. And so people are, are looking for alpha. And alpha isn't coming from even venture capital anymore. Alpha now seems to be coming from uh, uh, the, this cryptocurrency thing. Yeah. And if you can get in on the right pre-sale, if you can get in on the right you know, deal where the right oligarch or the right dark money is coming from the right source, then you know you can game things yeah. so that your stuff goes 100x, right? And that's an incredibly corruptive process. And these two yeah. are, these are different crowds, but they meet up at the founder CEO and the founder CTO <laughs> level. And uh, you know, and it might start out from very uh, uh, idealistic places, but it, but it can lead somewhere dark. The interesting thing that came into my mind was this sort of aspect of uh, the, the token economy it was like I took it to an extreme as a as a just as an intellectual exercise of like okay I write on Steam it and I get tokens for my work I take those tokens to the um, using the supermarket token to get my food I give them to the landlord token I give them to the electricity token etc etc and then I buy my Netflix token my Apple Music token my whatever else tokens various decentralized alternatives of those things um, and I was starting to think is that actually convenient it feels it's just like lots of tokens you have to keep exchanging yeah. and then someone said to me oh what we really need is universal tokens like, that's not going to happen <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of this interesting idea called like, fiat currency yeah if you take it to the extreme uh, it actually doesn't necessarily make the world do you view do you view frequent flyer miles as an alternative economic engine or do you view frequent flyer miles as that thing that you should get around to trying to spend one day yeah pretty much yeah. <laughs> right uh, and I can't I, I still don't understand people who buy extra frequent flyer miles because there's no way economically that works out for anybody even at a discount and, and, and also I mean and a lot of people have written about intrinsic versus extrinsic yeah. motivators right yeah. I think one reason why open source communities work is intrinsic motivation, yeah. right? Uh, one reason why other online communities have been a part yeah. of, you know, want to help each other, comes from intrinsic motivator, not because they're paid per minute to, to be talking to you, but because they like uh, they have a need, yeah. they want to serve, you have a need, you want to serve, and you meet up in the middle. And and I do worry a bit about if we if we ex- extrinsicate everything, right? Make everything about I do this because I can earn five tokens a minute yeah. doing it. Um, we end up in a poor space as a as a yeah. as humanity. And it's sort of there's been a lot of this is a quote that keeps coming up a lot about incentivization will drive. I can't the exact quote, but um, and yeah, it does. It is you, by putting a value on everything. It's sort of it does concern me slightly because it's like ticking off the lights. It's it's like uh, working through the check-ins. It's you know whereas in the open source community it was okay. You could look at your commit record, but. I don't know yeah, if people really sit there looking. I want to get to that seven hundred commit. You know, <laughs> the, the gamification of certain things, uh, or, or paying paying little bits of things, yeah. it's really hard to, um, yeah, uh, uh, to say. Like, there are projects out there that are basically miniature bug bounties, I, uh, and yeah. I and I believe in security bug bounties. Like, yeah. if you find a deep security well, hole in this, ten k, twenty k, or more. Because that's almost like an insurance policy. Like, yeah. like if nobody claims it for a long time, yeah. well, that's probably a sign that that you know it's it's there's yeah. it's fewer holes than you, than others uh, have, right? But I don't believe that's how you drive most of the software development out there. No. If I pay you five hundred dollars to fix a bug, um, uh, then your motivation will be to fix it as expediently as possible, but not necessarily the same fix that will keep other similar bugs from happening in the future or be understandable or even be necessarily accepted by the upstream core developers, right? 
like what happens if you come up with a bug fix, but there's some serious issues with it. It fixes the bug, yeah. but it introduces okay. some others, yeah. and and you submit it upstream and they don't accept it. Well, yeah. then it's no good to anybody except maybe except you know maybe to to claim the five hundred dollars, but but it's not a sustainable fix. Yeah. And so yeah. that's where you know payment for you can't you can't drive all the software development through these micro uh, kind of payments for features features and bugs. It's not a thermodynamic system like that. Uh, there was a famous paper 15-ish years ago called The Physics Envy of Modern Socioeconomics, which uh, uh, was basically it was a meta study, right, of all these papers out there that tried to figure out things about motivations and, and nudge, right, you know, like the whole Cass Sunstein kind of thing, um, which uh, I ultimately came to the conclusion that um, the scientists in the space want to treat it like a thermodynamic system where you can understand and model precisely the inputs and, and the results. Um, and it just doesn't work that way. Human subjects are squirrelously notorious for experimenting back upon the researchers, right? All those A-B tests that people did to test uh, consumer sentiment around advertising that they're shown. Uh, a year later, uh, consumers have figured out how to filter those kinds of ads out yeah. and get what they want, yeah. right? So um, this is something that pretends to be a hard science. Yeah. And it's not. Um, and, and so motivation design, economics design, is uh, when it works, it'll be you know interesting and amazing. But it'll also, it's almost always guaranteed that your inventions will be used. If you're an inventor and you come up with something, it's guaranteed people will try to game it. Oh, for sure. And or, try to figure out the, the optimal path through, through it. it. Um, and your design might take into account the happy path. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah. you have to think like a hacker when you design. This is actually a whole other topic of interest for me. This sort of ethics of tech, but also thinking about the, the worst case scenarios. But let's get back to hyperledger. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So actually, the, at this meetup last week, the, the he demoed a composer, which I found quite fascinating because, in my mind, and I've asked this to a lot of uh, blockchain development projects, where you, they kind of cover the, the token mechanisms, the smart contract mechanisms. But I still, I still, and I meet a lot of other developers from more traditional development backgrounds, still struggle to figure out how to put that into something. And so what? Like, how do I get that into a front end? How do I get it into a back end? And et cetera, et cetera. And so Pose is really interesting because it actually is a tool sort of designed to help you along that path. Um, and I, mean, I know it's very sort of early days, but it was... Quite, and it was using JavaScript. I think, yeah, not JavaScript. Esk, it was JavaScript, to, which is a, you know, even to a new developer, is a fairly easy language to get started. Right. Um, I heard one criticism from some people that the modeling language, the the, the presenter said, oh, it's for non-coders, and a lot of people like, I don't think non-coders will find it that easy to get. But but you know, early days. I struggled <laughs> so, with that for a while. I mean, have yeah. you ever looked at macro code inside of uh, a, a Excel? long time ago? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and I'm sure things like Oracle and stuff have these sorts of semi like scripting. And there are some sites. people working on smart contract languages, uh, like L four. I was called Legalese. There's a company. Uh, there a company called Legalese with a product called L four, and the other way around. Um, anyways, it's attempting to be a smart contract code that can be read by lawyers yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and has the lexical complexity required and the approachability, but has the precision that allows it to be turned into executable code. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I guess so. I guess when it comes to it's composer, isn't it? Not composer. Um, how successful has it been in, in getting people actually getting applications to at least to, to test it? 
we've heard good things. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to draw metrics from this because we don't require people to register when they use this stuff, when they deploy things. Um, I know there's hackathons that now this becomes the standard tool for getting average devs kind of, you know, they don't have to learn about a lot of the back end. They don't have to stand up their own network. They can just say, here's here's Composer, design it in this, and out it pops at angular.js based front end. And, um, and, and, and it's a great, a great way to bootstrap. There's a lot more to do there. Like yeah. being able to auto-deploy to end number of clouds, yeah. you know, I, I, or, or add in support for other uh, uh, distributed ledger systems. I mean, I would be happy to see it support not just Fabric, but also Sawtooth and Ethereum yep. uh, and, and others because, you know, I think diversity right now is helpful. Diversity, we need more ideas and more challenging of each other to, to be better. And, and DNA mixing as well, you know, to help, help improve uh, yeah. Uh, all these things, um, and uh, I, so Composer as a way to as a pipeline to bring in new devs who like eventually might scratch below the surface and do more things. Um, yeah, you invariably is, have to yeah. once you've used yeah. one of those tools anyway. You know, it takes you ninety percent of the way, and usually the, the remaining ten percent can take just as long. But yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> it was it was a cool looking idea anyway. I, cool, I'm it's, glad I'm glad it's something that I've struggled with so many times. Like, yeah. Well, we have to get it yeah. out of the coins as the end result. It, exactly. It's, not, it's the end result has to be some yeah. problem being solved. Yeah. And I think there'll be lots. Of, you know, on stage, I was asked, oh, "Did you see either of my kind of talks?" Or I think I, I've been in a bit of a oh, haze okay, cool. today, and I only just oh, looked so at this. A lot of the questions yeah. were like, "Well, how is this going to be real for end users?" Yeah. And I had to say, most of the time, this is about business to business connections. Yeah. This is going to be about. You know, I hope it means greater auditability, yeah. um, uh, uh, less fraud. And less risk, yeah. so maybe things like insurance rates come down or something like that. But like ultimately, uh, and fee, fee co- costs for for bureaucratic processes hopefully means less dumb paperwork having to fill in the yeah. same form over and over. But ultimately, this is still pretty back end. And my and what I hope Composer showed was that you can be building an app and not even know that it's blockchain and stuff behind yeah, exactly, the scenes. Exactly. Um, but yeah. just know you're tapping into yeah. a network where there's yeah. shared state, shared yeah. ground truth. Exactly. Um, and that's that's the important thing. And. And there's a lot of big businesses uh, coming on board with various blockchain technologies, including many, but most frequently, quite often, sorry, Hyperledger. Um, how many, do you know of any of, the, or you could say, <laughs> any of these uh, companies yet that are moving from just testing to actually having production applications? Yeah, we've got a, on our website kind of a part of our tracker, which is here's the stuff that we know about that's been publicly announced in production. Um, and uh, with a production or late stage pilot, I think we're tracking about two dozen different production networks out there in healthcare and in finance predominantly. Um, uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, what we don't have is a coin market cap where you can hit reload and see, like, yeah. which is probably a good thing. Probably, but uh, <laughs> but it makes it hard. Makes it hard to like make. It, like I said, this is the dark matter yeah. of the blockchain space, um, uh, and uh, and so we know people are downloading and using it. We know we're yeah. getting bugs that are the kind of bugs you would only see in production systems. You know, it's um, it's pretty impressive. So. And thank you for listening. Uh, these two interviews were part of a general article on DZone about open source software foundations. So have a read of that. Uh, will be in the show notes. On those aforementioned show notes, you can find them at com slash podcast. And you can support the show at com slash support. And you can find it on Facebook, facebook.com slash mammal. Talk to you next time.
Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast.